Hello and welcome back to Equity, a podcast about the business of startups where we unpack the numbers and the nuance behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I am joined today by senior TC reporter Natasha Moscarenas. Natasha, hello. I hear we only have good news today. We only have good news. I've been laughing and smiling all week and not at all stressed and about to cry. Yeah. I just stopped checking my 401ks and I think that's going to be the the path forward. Before we get into a bunch of stuff, some small housekeeping notes. One is Marianne is off today. We miss her. We adore her. She will be back next week. The other thing is we are recording this live. This is uh, our Thursday live show that we do every two weeks. So if we reference something that we're seeing visually that you can't see, that's our mistake. We're going to try to make sure that this translates as well to the standard podcast format as it does as a live thing. That said, just to make it not translate, feel free to ask us questions at the end of this episode. We will try and answer as many as we can. And that is an exclusive live show feature. So I hope you have FOMO and show up next time if you're not already here. And if you are here, thank you. You can also heckle us in the hop in chat if you're there. If you're on Twitter spaces with us, you can't heckle us. Ha ha. <laughs> let's go over the, uh, the rundown. We're going to talk about the end of the iPod, which we have a lot of emotions about, frankly. We have a couple of deals of the week. Modern Fertility's co-founder Lee and also Mara and crypto in Africa. Then we're going to talk about UST's crash, Coinbase, cryptocurrency, and the current state of affairs in the blockchain world. Then Tiger Global, the global downturn. And then we'll finally reflect a little bit on the chaos and talk about how, frankly, our posture uh, as reporters is changing. Fair enough. Fair enough. Thank you for running through that with somehow optimism and excitement in your voice, because it is it is a really negative show in a lot of ways. But we're hoping we can bring some analysis that either will make you feel heard as a listener or connect some dots if you're feeling overwhelmed by all the different news items out there. So I so respect the emotional place from which that comment comes from. But like the thing about the doom and gloom of this current moment is that it just feels like not comeuppance, but like the obvious final stage of a period of exuberance. And so like, if you go out partying all night and have a great time, probably not going to wake up at 8 a.m. feeling refreshed. You know, so that's my vibe with the current market. 100%. I think a lot of people have pointed this out already, but a lot of startups, lucky ones still, have money right now, unlike the yes. last complete bubble bursting. So I feel like there is opportunity as well. I mean, we'll, we'll get into a lot of the companies that are raising still throughout this, but yes. just know that for heading into the episode. Absolutely. Now, talking as we were just then about a change in in the guard, a change in the cycle. Well, one cycle is coming to an end in the world of technology, and that is the iPod is kaput. Natasha, Apple announced this week that they are going to cease production and essentially sell the rest of the inventory, but the iPod is done. Oh my gosh. When I saw this headline, I definitely had like two reactions. The first was, oh my God, I haven't thought about this thing in a while. Then the second was, now I'm thinking about it and I'm really sad that something that was such a hallmark of my childhood and definitely the first way I, other than the Walkman, this was like the first way that I like walked around and listened to music at the same time. So I just, I, all the feels as I'm sure you as well did, Alex. I mean, I remember my friend had one of the original iPods. It was the the first generation, and I have all the iPod stats pulled up here from Wikipedia. Oh, my God. It, it came in five and 10 gigabyte varieties. Wow. Firewire only Mac OS, or back then it was Mac OS 9 and uh, OS 10.1. So like it, it was like back in the day, and oh, it sounds small, but it was an absolute revolution in day-to-day music. You could take your music with you more than just one CD or a pack of CDs in the back of your car. Like that was such a change. It shook up music consumption, music distribution. It set the stage for streaming later on, a hardware foundation for smartphones. Like it's an amazing seminal moment that is now 
seeing the final chapter written. Yeah. And honestly, like in a way, maybe this is controversial, but I'm kind of happy to say goodbye to it because I think it needs to have such a dramatic ending or it needs to have a ending of sorts for us to sit down and talk about on equity and reflect on what it did for consumption and what it did for the legacy of how we listen to music. So I do feel like moments like this do force everyone to pause and think about their first interaction with the tech, which Man. as a softie, I'm very here for. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, fellow softie, but like this is a great example of the cliche that you don't get your flowers while you're still alive is true for a reason, right? We wouldn't have stepped back and talked about our our history with these devices, that there wasn't some cause. I'm just bummed we waited until it was death. I that know. <laughs> well, got us let's stay on the optimistic theme though, because I want to hear about your relationship with iPods. Like, what was your go to iPod? What songs yeah. did you have on it? Like, tell the people, yeah. but tell me more importantly. So, for me, the seminal iPod that I had, the most important one, I had a shuffle. I had one of the USB shuffles at oh, one point in time. And yes. I think did. I had a friend's old, like, second gen maybe. But the one that I remember as being my best friend was my iPod fourth generation color because I had a color screen and we were doing cool stuff back then. Like you couldn't put videos on them, but you could like bring on like a zillion photos and like slide through them as the scroll function on the wheel. And it would make the little video play, you know? But I remember the first iPod actually had a physical wheel that spun before it was a little touchpad. And no like, way. oh yeah, they were huge and terrible, oh my but they God. were enough of a step forward. A thousand songs in your pocket, a thousand. That it, that it changed everything. And I mean, I used my iPod religiously, Natasha, until I bought a Zune. And then I became a Zune boy. And then Microsoft killed the Zune. And I'm still <laughs> pissed about it. So <laughs> I remember the ads like yesterday, like all of them, the dancing, the just unleashing these products. I don't remember seeing as high quality of a production as we now see for the iPhone. And so comparing and contrasting how they would announce a new iPod versus a new iPhone is kind of funny in oh, retrospect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, back then there was so much emotion and joy. Like uh, Apple was having those iPod ads that had the dancing person yeah. and like a white silhouette and the music and the action. And now I feel like they're like the new iPhone now with four cameras. And I'm like, eh, <laughs> you know, like, I don't really buy. care. Yeah. <laughs> but back then, like you got like, they would double the storage and people would be like, oh my gosh, 40 gigabytes in your pocket. Holy crap. Like, I it know. was such a change. Oh my God. I think like, I don't remember the name of the iPod. My first iPod, I think it was like the OG silver one that was a touchpad as the wheel. Th that's me talking about hardware. I love hardware. <laughs> But <laughs> this is not our strong point. Let's be clear. <laughs> the one that I'm like emotional about is the purple Nano. I just, I thought purple was such a cool color. I was so excited about it. I downloaded all of Hillary Duff's songs and I will forever be thankful for those moments because I felt like the coolest person in the world. And yeah. there was a, it was an accessory. Technology was an accessory. Um, it was a fashion felt, item. Yeah. And it doesn't feel like that way anymore. Like I have a green phone case, but I take it all for granted now. And I, I'm, I'm happy that at one point I didn't. Yeah. Like on that point, I wanted to get a, a pink iPhone. And my wife and I went to the Verizon store to buy new phones because I had like dropped mine one too many times. And hers was really old. And they only had purple ones. And so I just got a purple phone, put it in a case and forgot. Like, yeah, I just don't it. care. But my iPod 4 was like, it was like when I dropped it, I feel like my heart broke. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, oh, I've scratched it. <laughs> Maybe it's because I was in high school and didn't have any money. I, definitely part but, of it. <laughs> yeah. I want to go into thing about Hillary Duff there really quick. I know we have to move on to the sad yes. news. But like, for example, about how important music was at this earlier iPod Zoom time when the online music world we live in was really coming into its own. I remember when I downloaded the Zoom software from Microsoft, it had a couple of tracks on it and you could download some music videos. And so I saw 30 Seconds to Mars's The Kill video and I was entranced because that song absolutely bangs and it's still holding up to this day. And yeah. It's incredible. And then, you know, 30 Seconds to Mars kept putting out, you know, big records, going on big tours. Jared Leto became some sort of movie celebrity, Everything. quasi cult leader. I don't know. Yeah. 
Yeah. Anyways, I got to interview Jared Leto once at a box event. Oh my God. And it was one of those like full circle technology moments. I was like, you don't know this, but Microsoft made me a fan of you. Oh my God. Why did (laughs) opening one? I didn't say that because that would have been strange. I was trying to be cool. Yeah. 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 But these devices were were huge in our childhood and our early, you know, adulthood, frankly. Yeah. Well, I'll raise my... My seltzer water to that. Yeah, cheers from the coffee mug to iPod. Bon voyage. Thank you for all that you did. I'm going to miss the memory of you, even if I do not miss the hardware, because <laughs> we've moved on. And uh, as Grace just threw in the chat here, bipod. All right, now let's pivot. Deals of the week, Natasha. The first one is one that I, uh, I got to read before it went out. And I'm fascinated by the story because it shows change at a unicorn. Yes. So I've been reporting about Roe, which is a healthcare unicorn for a few months now. And about six months ago, I first heard rumors that one of the companies that they acquired, Modern Fertility, was losing its co-founder. The co-founder will be stepping away. That ended up not getting confirmed until just this week when I mm. was talking to sources at the company and an internal memo had been sent saying that Afton, one of the co-founders of the now women's health practice at Roe is leaving to return to entrepreneurship. And in her words, per an email she sent to the company, it's the way that she can best be the most effective in impacting global women's health. So turnover at Roe continues, especially at the executive level. They just lost their COO and a GM a few weeks ago. Now, are those three senior exits the only ones that we're keeping in mind? Or were there more exits like last year that I'm, my memory says that's the case, but I want to double check that. There was. And listen, the great resignation was a huge theme and will continue to be a huge theme. But based on the conversations I had with current and former employees, a lot of people across all levels were leaving last year on a bunch of teams, especially the customer support team. So I think seeing it trickle down to the executive level means something, especially because Roe recently raised money at a higher valuation. People don't leave a higher valuation company unless something is better out there or isn't great inside. I don't think that's too much projection to make. Yeah. And it could be either things weren't going well internally for their project or there were now too many cooks inside the same kitchen, essentially. And like, you don't need everyone to stay. So some people were going to leave. I mean, seeing exits post-acquisition, not rare. These exits, given Rose's litany of departures, seems a bit more material to me. And there's kind of precedent with Roe losing the people behind their women's health practice. Yes. So Roe used to have a business stream called Rory, which was led by Rachel Blank, who eventually left to start her own hormonal health company, Alara. I covered it. It was very interesting to cover. But I think that that context made me especially want to cover this. But hey, I think the takeaway here is executive shakeups are continuing and we're seeing Roe. It's leaving like that. This is a portion of growing pains as you hit the growth scale. And now have to kind of prove and explain itself past its ability to raise, sure, but still losing people. I just realized something very important. Because we're doing this live, Grace can't jump in and say, hurry up so we can take as much time as we want. We're essentially (laughs) off the chain right now. This is lovely. Let's do it live every week. I know. So staying to this theme, Natasha, we saw Roe by by Daddy, which is the sperm freezing company, which is... A name. One hell of a name. They bought Modern Fertility. They used to have Rory, which actually is a really good name. Ro and Rory, that's actually clever. How seriously should we take Ro's broader efforts into the world of both women's health and fertility? Because when I watch sports games on the television, the only time Ro comes up is for <clears throat> dick pills. Oh, interesting. I yeah, didn't even know that they were still doing ads like that. Be Roman ready. And I'm like, ah, get out of my living room. <laughs> I mean, I'll respond to that question with quoting an email that Roe sent their team last month. They said that they are going to be putting more energy and resources towards fewer initiatives for the rest of the year, but are also saying that they're not going to stop launching products and services. At the same time, they're going to continue building for new and existing patients, but want to grow with discipline. So I think we're getting mixed messages on what they're doing. And it's a little hard to kind of glean from the outside on exactly how ambitious they're going to be in the next few yeah, months. That's if like not your- telling your date, like, 
I'll see you at eight o'clock. By the way, I'm breaking up with you. I'm also married, but we got divorced. See you at eight. And like, you're like, how do I read that? Like, what's going on? Exactly. Their language that they used to use internally was we want to be the Amazon of healthcare. Their language they're now using internally is we want to grow with discipline. So I think that tells us all we need to know. (laughs) Yeah, which is that Amazon's market cap lost like $700 billion. (laughs) Next week, we are continuing on this theme. Natasha, you are hosting a really exciting Wednesday show with the founder and CEO of Hey Jane. Is that true? Yes, yes. So we're going to be talking about the impact of Roe v. Wade being potentially overturned. And we're also going to talk about everything about digital health that we can fit into a 30-minute episode. Please come by. I should have entered this, Natasha. What is Hey Jane and and what do they do? Yeah, so they help deliver abortion pills across the country. And they're trying to make medical abortions more accessible towards anyone who wants to have an abortion. So I'm very here for it. News recently came out via Axios that they're going to be raising a new round soon. So I think we're going to get them at a good time and talk about the venture side of trying to get your company funded when for some reason people think that what you're doing is political. Never have I thought that the Supreme Court would lead to a growth round at a startup. And yet here we are. Here we are. Speaking about rounds, though, at startups, the other round of the week is Mara. And we're pretty sure it's Mara. We talked about Mara versus Mara. I think for sure it's Mara. A crypto company in Africa just raised $23 million from Coinbase Ventures and FTX. So two of the bigger corporate venture names in the crypto world, Natasha, they're kind of in, it seems like every deal that it matters, if you will. Yeah, definitely. And other VCs, just in case you want some names, TQ Ventures, Digital, All Caps, Nexo, Day One Ventures, Infinite Capital, and then... My favorite, Dow Jones, D-A-O Jones, which is just, I mean, I'm here for a pun all the time. Oh my God. I mean, that is the part of crypto that I'm like very happy. It has It's made tech silly again in some ways with yes, some of these projects. <laughs> I love silly things. I, I'm here for a laugh. You Did know, you? absolutely. What matters is that Mara is a pan-African crypto exchange platform that wants to kind of bring more Africans into the quote crypto economy. And its CEO and co-founder, Chi Nadi, used to run sustainability efforts, I think as part of the UN, used to fly a lot, travel a lot, see the discrepancy in kind of economic conditions in Africa and other places and said, hey, we should fix this. Now quite a lot of money. And according to TechCrunch.com, Natasha, crypto usage in Africa across the continent was up like 1,200% in the last year, which is, I think, the third fastest pace of growth in the world. So one, it goes to show how fast everything's going in crypto land up until- Totally. You know, yesterday. And also how important Africa could be as a place for it to grow, because as we talked about on the show, fintech in Africa, big freaking deal. Yeah, 100%. And you'll appreciate this. Africa's cryptocurrency market, like you said, has grown 1200% by value, but it's also still the smallest cryptocurrency economy of any region we study as of right now. So I feel like the startups play at its heart is really like, can we bet on activation energy from consumers and make that a product? But that in and of itself has so much competition, which I think Tej really put really well in his piece. He kind of walked through how many startups there are right now. And I think the way that Mara appears to be differentiating beyond ambition is really trying to work with governments and be a, quote, legalized exchange. I kind of like that it's talking about oversight and not screw people in power so early on because it definitely could do that, but instead planning to do a maybe a slower growth, higher stickiness sort of growth scheme. Yes. But also, Tage uh, and Annie covering Africa for TechCrunch, absolutely brilliant. If you don't follow them on Twitter, I mean, you're just missing out. Yeah. Anyways, according to the piece, I think they're going to launch their own layer one blockchain, which is like Ethereum or Bitcoin, kind of the base layer, and have their own token. And the idea, I think, here is to have kind of an Africa-focused native crypto token. And I don't know much about geographically targeted tokens, but if it would increase financial access across Africa, I had no beef, you know? Sounds great. Yeah. 
going off of that, it sounds like they're starting with financial infrastructure, but they want to help people do more than buy crypto. I think them creating their own coin would help, as they said, African engineers create their own projects and be a source of incubating and creating talent. So I like that they're doing a platform play with the exchange. And this is one of the biggest Web3 crypto rounds to be happening in Africa right now. So definitely noteworthy. It may soon be one of the biggest crypto rounds happening, period, because things have really, really changed in the last couple of weeks (laughs) in crypto land. Yes. You know, not that long ago, Natasha, I was writing posts like, did no one tell crypto that the party was over? Because like software VCs and hardware VCs were all like pulling back and crypto was just like, oh my God, partying. The the exuberance versus the winter that we felt otherwise. I feel heard this week because things are catching up to each other. Yes. It turns out that gravity is real and it's still true. So what happened this week that's really been the, the flashpoint and what I've been staying up too late watching and waking up too early to check on has been the dramatic depegging of UST or essentially Terra, which was a stable coin, not a stable coin in the sense that every single dollar of Terra was backed by a hard set of assets. Instead, it was an algorithmic stablecoin, which is to say it had a sister token called Luna. Natasha, stop me if I get too far in the weeds here at any point. I actually, well, I wanted to pause you because I wanted to hear why it's important, before we get into it, why it's important for us to be looking at stablecoins as a signal for anything. Uh, Why do you look at stablecoin prices? Well, I don't usually look at stablecoin prices because they're usually flat at $1 or a euro or whatever. But stablecoin volume is very important. And also stablecoin coin aggregate value. So most stable coins are pegged to the US dollar just as a data point. I'm not trying to be overly US specific here, but I, I'm not really aware of one pegged to like the Japanese yen, for example, and okay. so forth. And what matters is stable coins are a way to have dollar equivalents inside the crypto world. Because you can't really bring your, your fiat money into the crypto world without turning it into a token. So you can participate in the broader blockchain economy. Stable coins help you do that. And they're very easy. And one of them, Tether, does the squillions of dollars a month in volume. And then there were some other ones, USDC from Circle, Then there was Terra, which had a sister token, Luna. And the idea with it was that the two tokens would essentially balance one another. So if Terra, the stablecoin, became too valuable or too far away from its peg, Luna would either be burned or created and balance it out. And the idea was it would kind of sit there at the middle point of a teeter-totter, that's an algorithm, and balance with people essentially trading back and forth, looking for small edges as a way to kind of keep it in sync. And that worked well for about a year. Yeah. And it helped people basically break into starting to think about and use crypto more, right? The fact that this was doing well for a year? No, I don't think Terra helped anyone outside of crypto get into it. I think if you got into crypto, it was via (laughs) Coinbase or similar and probably didn't. And the whole thing was there was a bunch of Luna tokens that were like, I think, staked on the Alchemy DeFi network and then you could get yield. It was an intra-crypto play. I appreciate that context because I think on the outside, you hear stablecoin and you're like, is this stable? Do I interact with this? And I don't think that's always the case, clearly. And now as we kind of get to today's news, it's a lot more volatile. Yes. And uh, just to kind of wrap this up before we get into the regulation point that I think you're nudging us towards, the value of Luna, the sister token, Deterra, the stable coin, went from like $100 per coin to one or two cents as we talk. Like it's a collapse in price. I mean, I'm not going to say without precedent because Enron was the thing, but like almost without precedent. Yeah. And this has caused carnage across the crypto economy. Everything is sold off. Wah, wah, sad times. I care about the people that are hurt by this, not the actual technology because technology goes up and down. We're not making light of your pain. We're making light of the relative comedy of the situation. And Natasha, it's bringing in clarion calls for regulation. Yeah. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen mentioned this week that there's going to need to be more stable coin regulation. And that was in front of the Senate Banking Committee. And I think that kind of 
of similar to what we saw in India where regulation was a response to volatility. It's a very natural part of something like this going up and down. So I, we started the segment off by talking about crypto's exuberance. Now we're seeing it kind of hit a, I wouldn't say maturity level, but like a realistic level that's causing people to speak out about it, which I think is healthy. Yeah. yeah. I just, I'm trying to fit some sort of Janet Yellen quote, Janet's yelling joke into this show and it's not quite I mean, coming I think together. that's the headline. We can make it a headline if we needed to. I think if we said Janet's yelling, everyone's going to think we're talking about like Jane's Addiction, the band. Oh, or, I don't I, even I don't know, know that band. Yeah. I don't know if it would work. Okay, we'll talk offline. Usually we delete these joke workshops, but because we're live, you get them live. Hey! <laughs> uh, and should. that's how we name the show. <laughs> I want to bring in Circle, though, and yes. USDC, which is a rival stablecoin, I yeah. suppose. You might have heard of Circle if you're listening in, because Circle is a crypto company that is going to go public via a SPAC, at least in theory. It has pushed back its SPAC and doubled its targeted valuation because its stablecoin is doing so well. And Natasha, I'm going to explain to you how it works. And it's going to sound very simple because it is. Let's say I want a USDC. I give them a dollar and they create a stable coin for me and hold on to the dollar. That's it. Hard stop. That's it. Wow. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And then I mean, they have a chart and you can track it and you can look at the assets and it's really easy and it's done well for them because it's not complicated. It's not, quote, too clever by half. It's easy and you can do it that way. And Jeremy Allaire, the co-founder and CEO of Circle, quoted by, I think it was Jacqueline Melnick on the TechCrunch side. Yeah. He said, frankly, the shocking thing to me is how many apparently intelligent people in the crypto universe bought the hype on UST or Tether. The biggest remark I have is how disappointing. So many thoughtful people believing that you could meme this into existence and stability. That was the surprising thing. And I disagree with Jeremy because his presumption here is that people are rational. And, I was going to say, you're hmm. surprised people are memeing stuff into existence. I, I'm like, have you ever heard of the history of booms and busts across the financial <laughs> landscape of human? I mean, he's being kind. I'm not. As we should, as we should. You know, it's interesting to me that Circle is pursuing a SPAC, maybe not as surprising given it's a very simple business model or explanation be giving, but based sure. on how some other public crypto companies are performing this week, it doesn't seem like the markets are necessarily arms wide open for crypto companies. Julio, can we get Creed arms wide open in the background as I talk through Coinbase's <laughs> earnings? Thank you. Coinbase did report earnings this week. If you listen to the Monday show, we presaged this. We said, look, you know, it's a tough week in crypto. Coinbase's earnings are going to be very important because they're going to show essentially what's going on inside of these exchanges in terms of volume and active users and provide us a really great kind of proxy for crypto activity outside of the Twitter ecosphere, if you will. And Coinbase had bad earnings. And this is the first time I can say that about Coinbase. They've been really a kick-ass company for a long time. Mm -hmm. They would post big revenues. They would do cool tech things. They would generate tons of gap net income. And, you know, beef or not with crypto world, Coinbase always had the results to back up its, let's call it self-confidence, maybe is the right phrase for that. In Q1, they shrank year over year. And they also ended up losing money. And for investors in companies, what you want to see is growth and increasing profitability, demonstrating operating leverage and kind of standard business concepts. If you shrink and you start to lose money, it's bad. And they had a roughly, if I recall the math, a $1.2 billion profit swing year over year. I think that, you know, the other... Is that the song? I think the song's playing. I was like, is that just me? No, that, that's Julio playing with Arms Wide Open by Creed. We're going to get... Okay, Julio, play it. We'll be quiet. I mean, I wish I knew the lyrics or else I would have totally sang for you guys. I'm not going to sing. We have to get to the chorus. Oh, it's gone. Okay, well, we didn't quite get to the chorus, but if you haven't listened to Creed in a long time... There well, you they, Creed, okay, look, Creed is not like Nickelback. They have some great tracks and I will, I will go down on that ship. <laughs> Can you tell that equity is leaning heavily on the music category this week to stay positive and light? <laughs> well, 
Well, you got to have fun somehow. And mostly talking about sad things. I mean, you and I like to kind of like, you know, banter and have a good time, make some jokes and and enjoy this because it's fun. Podcasting is the best part of my week, but it is a little sad, but every item is like, okay. And then three more ponies fell into the ocean. You're like, oh, I know. I know. I mean, you were talking about Coinbase losing tons of money and I was hearing like the beginnings of a song playing in the background. And I was like, I, I can't, (laughs) what is happening right now? Am I in a sitcom? (laughs) I know exactly. Um, But I will pick up, I will pick up where you left off because there's one quote that I think is getting a lot of traction going back to crypto Twitter, um, which is that the crypto exchange in its earnings warned that bankruptcy could wipe out user funds, elevating the point that we've always known, which is that if all of your crypto is on Coinbase, you don't necessarily own that crypto. Is it fair that this is the quote that people are focusing on or does it feel like a soundbite that's getting? Okay, there's a lot to unpack here. I'm going to do it as quickly as I can. By the way, this is the the question to ask. So dead on. There's a meme in the crypto world that says, not your keys, not your crypto, which is to say that if you hold your crypto worth on a centralized exchange that has the kind of custody of it, you don't have it. You have a theoretical right to it, but someone else holds it. An important concept as we think about exchanges and decentralization. In terms of the company's warning about possible bankruptcy, one thing that people do who don't read a lot of financial filings, and it's no fault of their own, they're allowed to have a life and be normal, (laughs) is overly fixate on boilerplate. Mm -hmm. And one thing that we see when companies go public that have a history of losing money is they have a risk factor in their S1 filing that says, we have not achieved profitability and may never achieve profitability because they have to cover their backside and it's a standard bit of boilerplate. And people go, oh, you know, company X is never going to make money. And I'm like, They admitted "Eh." it. Yeah. I mean, I'm guilty of this. I think risk factors are for me the first place I go when I see an S1 because it's the spiciest stuff on like more of the, like the theory side. Like I think the numbers leave up to you. I like knowing them admitting that they're going to fail and that they need to randomly rely on Peloton for half of their revenue. Let's not make fun of a firm this early in the show. That's for next week. (laughs) That's fascinating because it's the last thing I read if I even read them. (laughs) There we go. It's good we work together. (laughs) Yeah, and that's two peas, one pod. So in this case, my first read was that Coinbase was just boilerplating. They're just saying like, look, if we went bankrupt, you know, these assets might be possibly part of that and you might not be able to hold on to them. I struggled to have as bearish a take on the company's financial solvency as others. But there are some indications that things aren't so great. Q1 operating cash burn was high, although it's very nuanced given that they are moving around crypto assets like USDC. And so it's not exactly as clean as the SaaS companies. They do have a lot of cash. Their debt's not due for nine years, give or take, but we are seeing a sell off in their bonds. Coinbase is not going broke unless there is a cascading catastrophic potential issue in its finances that I can't see in the next couple of years. So to me, that was more boilerplate. And then the C CEO got on Twitter and said, we're not going bankrupt, period, or something like that. And I was like, oh, ah, risk. risk." (laughs) I mean, I do love that that this just means people are reading financial documents more closely, like to your point. I think that that elevating as a thing that's controversial probably wouldn't have been five years ago. And I didn't even mean to do this on purpose, but I'm wearing my Brian Armstrong costume today. Oh my God. Uh, Great to have you on the show, Brian. Thanks for responding to our emails for once. Sorry, I'm a billionaire. I will be flying away. (laughs) I do listening. (laughs) Sorry. I was going to try to workshop one last thing about Coinbase before we move Mm. on. So I think originally I was using Coinbase as the best signal to track how excited people are about crypto and how stable it is. But as I was looking into it for this show, I guess I remembered that the company makes money with transaction fees, meaning that a sell-off does positively impact it, if I'm correct. And big swings in general, either way, will help the company make money. And so I'm wondering if long-term Coinbase is the best company to try and extract, I don't know, sentiment from 
or if we're seeing other players take its spot long-term. And you don't have to have an answer to it on the spot, but I'm just wondering. Oh, I do. I'm oh, just perfect. trying to figure out how I want to phrase it. What I would prefer is if we could take aggregated information from all the major exchanges, Kraken, yeah. FTX, Binance, Coinbase, and add up all the results together to get kind of a unified set of how much are our consumers trading right now? And then I would bring in all the DeFi exchanges, which are smaller, but also very important. Then I would bring in all the NFT companies, okay. get all that. And then I would have this master spreadsheet. Only one of them is public. <laughs> so we only have Coinbase. <laughs> okay. So I think you're dead on. In terms of signals we can really lean on, I think Coinbase is kind of it. In terms of financial results of operating companies versus on-chain things like trading okay. volume for ETH or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It tells more about like the business of crypto companies than the future of crypto interest so far. But I do yeah, love this tweet that's on the screen right now. Yeah, if you can't see it, I'll read it to you. It's a tweet from someone named Alex who has a really dweeby profile picture. He says, <laughs> am I wrong that Coinbase has hella cash? Do I write like this? <laughs> Has hella cash RN, long-term debt not at term for nearly a decade and is in no danger of running out of funds? Question mark. I mean, it's cash flow statement is a journey, but am I missing anything major? And then people were like, yes. And they tried to like argue that Coinbase was in more trouble than I thought. And I wasn't quite convinced. I mean, it means something for us to be, yeah, not entirely cynical on Coinbase. I will take that and I will let us run with it. Oh, I mean, meh. Coinbase is in a, a trough for sure. But like if volume goes back up in crypto trading, they print money. Yeah. So really the question is, where is crypto trading volume going? And if you're bullish or bearish, place your bets accordingly. But Coinbase, I nerdily track this company. I have a running spreadsheet of all of their historical transaction data, calculating out their take rates. That's why we love you. And yeah, I have questions, but like if volume goes up, they're fine. Let's move on to, yes. uh, ah, car crash number three, Natasha, Tiger Global. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually kind of happy that we're ending our crypto segment for the episode. I was like, I Oof. have hit my peak. But let's talk about Tiger Global. Connie had a piece this week in which she wrote about this report, this still yet to be confirmed, huge loss though for Tiger Global. They basically have a $7 billion hedge fund loss and have nearly depleted its latest VC fund. So we're seeing it experience one of the biggest dollar declines for a hedge fund, not its own hedge fund, a hedge fund in history, <laughs> and erased a lot of its gains since its first launch in 2001. Huge reckoning for Tiger Global. All that was well said. Just one tiny quibble. It's a $17 billion loss, not a $7 billion oh loss. Oh my God. Sorry. Did I say seven? I think you did. Okay. I, I, and I hate to correct you because you're brilliant. But 17. I, I just want to- 17. Yeah. It's a big enough differential that I felt the need because Please. it goes to show the scale of the issue that Tiger has run into. And Natasha, just rewind the clock 12 months. It's Oof. May, 2021. What are we talking about? The latest- Tiger round, the index fund of growth stage companies, the IPO cycle, how Tiger has changed venture capital, according to everyone in venture. And now it turns out that they haven't. Oh my God. They added almost 120 unicorns to their portfolio in 2021. And so in some way, their exposure is so clear because what have we been talking about this past week? A lot of unicorns are having layoffs and are figuring out how to trim costs. So it's not at all surprising that they are very exposed and thus very impacted by the venture winter this summer. Yeah. Well, let's pause and ask a question and then get back into the other stuff we have in this section. But like Tiger Global, how do they lose this much money oh my God. after they just put together an, an enormous fund 15 worth about 12.7 billion that they've already nearly entirely put to work? Well, we've seen a massive sell-off in the value of software companies, one of their key investment categories. We have seen a massive sell-off in BNPL companies yeah. harming all startups in kind of the fintech space. We have not seen things like neobank liquidity apart from Nubank, which has gone eh. Things like Better.com and the massive change in their business due to external factors and some internal mistakes, to be clear. But it just goes to show that the change in the valuation and worth of companies that Tiger was 28 minutes ago pumping cash into with a fire hose has 
change broadly. And that means that they had to write a lot of stuff down. And now they look currently about as silly as they looked strong last year. It's such a weird contrast. And I, to me, from the early stage world, seeing this sort of headline pop up is, yes, another chapter in proving why Tiger Global might be going towards the early stage. There's more of a capital bubble around it and it isn't yet as prone to valuation slashes. Yes. But last week I was writing about OnDeck's layoffs and sources Ah. said that OnDeck was raising a fund largely from Tiger Global. Then Tiger Global pulled out support. So I am wondering if... Fund or round? Fund. They have a fund for their accelerator program, which is now kind of going to be scaled back. This is a detail that I am maybe over-indexing on, but I, you know what? I'm not because I think that it's surprising that Tiger Global pulled out support from OnDeX and therefore pulled out some early stage exposure because it's making me think that we've already gotten past the point where Tiger Global is moving to the early stage. Oh, oh. Oh, okay. Let yeah. me let me spit this back to you to make sure I'm tracking this. On deck, accelerator, different classes. Some of our friends worked there. I don't know if any of them still do. I haven't checked in with anybody, but we knew people who worked there at least yeah. at one point in time. Okay. And then they're going to put together a fund to invest in their own accelerator companies. Tiger was going to put money into that fund. Fair yeah. enough. Tiger pulls out of that fund, which means their capital will not be flowing through on deck into the on deck accelerator, limiting early stage exposure, comma. We heard recently they were doing more early stage. Yeah. You're asking, is that already over? I think it's already over. I think Tiger's early stage party is over. You know, they did an investment in AngelList a few months ago, but that feels like a lifetime ago based on how much the market's been corrected since. And so maybe it's on deck that is the reason they pulled out, but maybe it's also that they're not thinking that early stage is the answer. Let's see. I just think Tiger going quiet is the same way Tiger going loud had a huge impact for venture. Tiger going quiet will definitely have a huge impact for what we see happening. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, Tiger Global. What a name. I know. And what a website. You pulled up the website as we were prepping for the show. Give people a (laughs) brief update if who's not in the reporter's seat, how easy it is to talk to Tiger. Uh, It's about as easy as yelling at a brick wall and asking for poetry in return. Their website is a static page, essentially, that has like probably a hundred words on it total and a phone number. And I'm not going to lie, Natasha, I'm a millennial journalist. I would rather saw off my fingers than call someone I don't know on the phone. (laughs) I will do it when I have to, but please give me an email address for the love. Here's the... If you're on Hopping with us right now, you can see the, the website like, in all of its glory. So impressive. I It's so smart because it's similarly, and I guess I just sound lazy right now, but I'm like, similarly has weeded me out from trying to talk to them at times because of this. <laughs> yes. So I usually just go the portfolio company route and try and reverse engineer my way into an email address. But Oh yeah, absolutely. Super. If you're on the, the audio podcast Friday morning, imagine a seventh grader's first HTML project in their first web dev class when they make a static page and then just change out the text for really boring generic financial words. That's what it looks like. <laughs> Perfectly it's, it's, said. <laughs> yeah, it's not much. Let's go ahead and move towards a conclusion here because we're a little bit over time and talk about just how much things have changed and where we are, you and I, in terms of figuring things out. Because that's what I think the real question here is. How close are we to understanding what's going on? And when was the last time we had to do so much retooling of our priors, if you will? Oh my God, yeah. I was thinking about this when talking to founders a few weeks ago. And I felt like when March 2020 happened, every company was suddenly newsworthy because they were reacting to this once in a lifetime event, changing product, changing their fundraising plans, etc. And I meant it in that moment. And now I haven't meant it in a while, but I think it's happening again, where every company is again, kind of really newsworthy in how they're pivoting. I think that there's going to be the companies that say that this is not impacting business and VC firms will say that we are, what's the phrase that they use? Business as usual? Yeah, business as usual. Yeah. We're still writing checks. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think those stories will not be interesting, but it's challenging me because I don't think that funding rounds have been super relevant for a long time. And now they feel like they'll be even less relevant in a way. What about you? Well, I started tracking the 
late stage issues in the startup world, late Q4, maybe like mid Q4 to late Q4, somewhere in there. I was not the first to this. I'm not trying to Keith Raboy this. <laughs> I was medium early at best because I was busy. I should have been paying more attention. The changes in my world are kind of late stage startups, unicorns and IPOs ha have happened. Like yeah. we're, we're already there. And so my question that I'm trying to figure out now is just how far down the stack does it go? And does the pain trickle down in, in similar amounts as we get earlier and earlier? You know, a month ago, I would have said, yes, it trickles down, but less so. Yeah. And now after this conversation, maybe that was a little conservative of me. So I'm very curious about companies and what they're going to do. But one thing that we do as the market changes is we shift our focus a little bit. We try to make sure they're recovering the most interesting and most impactful things. And so Natasha, you've moved from ed tech during COVID to an early stage focus to now something more on the fintech side. Walk me through this. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing I've always struggled about, I guess, to get personal as a reporter is figuring out the best way to frame what I'm interested in. Like, I know it when I see it, but I don't really think about branding it, for lack of better phrasing. Um, but I've most recently landed on fintech through the lens of access, education, and really wealth and how people make money and talk about money as the thing that gets me interested. I always kind of light up when I hear someone either break access open to investing, teach someone how to invest, or they themselves learn how to be like a more selfish worker. Like those are kind of the themes I care about. Yes, I mean, so that is my sector that I'm focusing on. Edtech falls into that. Health tech falls into it. Any unicorn changing the way that they serve their employees falls into that. But it's been the latest way that I felt like I can kind of sum up what I care about, especially in the market today. So on the financial literacy point, you mean teaching regulars, like folks, just like, you know, people that we see at the coffee shop, how to better manage their money and also how to better demand their worth, if you will, in the market. Yeah. Okay. And I think that can go from anything from like social fintech that gets you to, you know, learn how to invest in crypto to helping you learn how to buy a house by sharing that down payment with a couple of your friends. I feel like there's like a lot of interesting ways we're seeing fintech be more accessible that in some ways is like, okay, fintech, you've had a few years, what's happening? Like what's changing? <laughs> um, but in other ways, like I'm kind of glad we're past the neobank boom and can kind of take away some of that early noise. Like the noise is kind of in Web3 and crypto. I will cover that as part of it, but I'm glad to be covering fintech with Marianne. It'll be fun. Yeah, I was just about to say, well, you happen to be paired up with our ace fintech reporter, Marianne, who's been <laughs> stuck in the, in the salt mines of that part of the world for so long now. Oh I don't God. know how she's still alive, frankly. There's just like software is always busy, but fintech for the last two years just seemed to be regular explosions. Like it was just insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it totally. And it, what we saw with Fast and Bolt and Main Street and so many of these fintech companies that they're having their moments of reckoning. So yeah. I think those are such interesting things to cover. I guess shooting it back to the late, stage, I saw a tweet that I wanted to get your thoughts on, which is from Haystack, the investor at Haystack. Uh, Samil Shah. Samil Shah. Thank you. He was saying how investor kind of feedback periods have always been long, but they're about to get a lot longer. I think he was probably insinuating that companies are just not going to go public anytime soon and we just won't know oh. venture performance. What does that change for what you're covering, what TC Plus is covering? To me, that was like a good way to frame that our jobs are going to be getting harder in terms of accountability. Yeah, exactly that. I mean, when he says venture feedback periods are long and they're going to get longer. My read of that is saying that if you make a seed bet, and Haystack famously is invested around the earliest stages, yeah. call it seed, pre-seed, pre-pre-seed, mango seed, whatever the hell you want to call it. <laughs> it's a long journey. You put five million into a seed company, you might not see an exit if it does great for eight to 10 to 12 years, right? So yeah. it's lengthy. And everything just got pushed back because no one's going public now because the IPO window is closed. 
And there's antitrust concerns amongst major technology companies. They now have less money to play with because their stocks all went down and people are caring more about cash and shareholder returns in the form of buybacks and dividends. So if you're Microsoft, are you going to be out there splashing money around the startup world? Or are you probably being a bit more conservative, fewer exits, yeah. less velocity in exit pace? And that means that investors don't really know how they're doing for longer. And that means that, ergo, we also don't know how they are doing. So it's going to be harder, quieter, less loud, and probably more boring. Last yeah. year was exciting, at least. Oh my God. I remember there being a conversation we were having where I was like, what's the best? Everyone's inflating their IRR right now. And like, which is the better, more accurate metric to use? And I feel like we're going to see a lot less leaks of IRR coming. Yeah, I think... <laughs> I think those little tidbits are going to slow down. Look, let's stop because this is the right place to do it. A lot of questions, a lot of things that are going on at once. I'm glad we have the show that we do to talk it through and stick with us because even though the show was not exactly the most positive show, I'm finding the world fascinating and there's so much to learn and I don't know what's going on yet. I'm trying to figure it out and trying to write it down. Totally. And if you are listening to us while you are running or listening to us during lunch right now, I hope you enjoyed the entertainment. I feel like I've recently gotten that feedback a lot that they're listening to us when they're running. So, I mean, hopefully this keeps you going, literally. Yeah. If you're running right now, come on, pick up the pace. <laughs> look at your split times. Pathetic. I never. I never look at it because it's, it is pathetic. <laughs> well, mine are. All right. Uh, we adore you all, Natasha. Thank you so much. And as always, a thank you to Grace Mendenhall, our producer, yes. to Julio Barrientos, who helps put the graphics together and host the whole thing. And also Yashad Kulkarni, because he is the TechCrunch video god still. So thank you very much, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. We're back on Monday morning. Bye. Bye. 